Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're continuing to work through Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. We're now uh, to what would be called maybe the second part of uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Uh, Jesus, Lord and Messiah, is what uh, Peter is getting at here. It's the point he's trying to make. It's the, the title of, of the message today, Jesus, Lord and Messiah. Acts 2, 22-36 is the real meat of Peter's sermon. This, this is, he's done his introduction. Uh, you know, he talked about how he answered the critics. He uh, went to Scripture and he points it back to Jesus. Three of the... the uh, uh, ideas, uh, methods of talking to somebody about Jesus when the, when the question comes up. That's what uh, Peter did here. Now he's, he's to the point. Who is this Jesus? Who, is, who are we talking about? Uh, he, he again goes back to Old Testament Scripture, taking it to the context that, that the people understood and is going to make a, a very uh, startling point for the folks who were listening to him on this day. Verses 22 through 23 is going to be a summary of God's actions through the life of Jesus. What, what did God do through Jesus? Or, or what did the people see Jesus doing? 24 through 32 is scriptural proof of Jesus' Messiahship through his resurrection. But not just testimony of the people that saw it, but scriptural proof from the Old Testament. Excuse me, 33 through 35 will be scriptural proof of his Messiahship through Jesus' exaltation. Where is Jesus now? What happened after the resurrection? And then verse 36 is going to be the exclamation point to Peter's message, uh, the, 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 where he pounds it home uh, at this point in, in the sermon. What we're going to see today, though, is that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, is the Lord and Messiah, that the Old Testament promised and humanity needs. It was a promise, it was a need, and Jesus meets that need. So let's, let's look at verses 22 through 23. I'm not going to read the whole passage. At first, we're just going to read it as we go this morning. Peter says to the folks standing around, Fellow Israelites, Listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless men, uh, lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So what's he doing here? He's telling them, Basically what they already know. He's explaining to them who Jesus was. Uh, it just given a, a two-verse recap of three years of Jesus' ministry. Telling them this Jesus of Nazareth was a man. Now, we, we don't want to be too, uh, hang out here too much and put too much emphasis on this so that we lose Jesus' divinity what he's saying here, because he's going to set up Jesus' divinity here in the next few verses. He's beginning by saying, look, he was clearly, obviously a man. He was full, uh, fully man. He's talking about his full humanity. You, you know where he is from. He's, he's from up the road in Nazareth. You know this guy. 
you know who he is, you know about him, you may have even known some of his family, some of you who are here today. You know this guy, this Jesus, and it was attested to you. God attested to you who this man was, how this man was more than just a man. Uh, this phrase attested to you has a, a couple of meanings. One, it would be just a, a testimony of, of, of who he is and, and what you know. See, this, this is the guy we're talking about. You, you know who I'm talking about. And it was, it was told to you over and over, shown to you over and over who he was. But there's also here this, this idea of Jesus being appointed, but not yet serving. This, this idea of having a title but not yet fulfilling that title. Uh, for example, would, it would be something like our presidential election. We have the election in November. That person is uh, the president-elect, is what we call them. They, they have the title because they've been elected, they've been voted in, but they don't become the president. They don't begin to serve that role until June 20th or 21st at the inauguration. What Jesus was doing here, or what this, this phrase was telling them, was you knew this guy, he, he was attested to you by all these works, but he was also appointed the Messiah that was going to fully show himself at his death and resurrection. He fully served as Messiah upon his death and resurrection. Now, this is another phrase that we don't want to take too far because this does not mean that he wasn't always fully God. This doesn't mean that he wasn't always fully the Messiah. What this means is he didn't fulfill that role completely until his death and resurrection, until he took the sin of humanity and then defeated that sin, defeated the power of that sin, defeated the power of death by dying and rising from the grave three days later. That was when his full messiahship was on display. So Peter's telling them, this guy was attested to you through all these various ways that we're going to talk about here in a minute. But he was attested to you by showing you this is what he's going to do. This is who he is going to prove himself to be. He's setting them up. Again, he is setting them up. He's lobbing this little softball up in the air, so that for the people there, he can just knock it out of the park, just clobber them with the truth. And we're going to hear next week their response to the truth. So, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you, appointed but not yet serving, by God. Now, he is letting them know this is not just a good story. This is not just something that we look at, we read, and say, well, isn't that nice how things worked out? No, he is letting them know that the source and the director of everything that Jesus did, everything he taught, everything that happened to him was directed and sourced by God. He was the one in control. He was in charge. He's going to talk about that here in just a second. He's going to make it even clearer to them. But there was no accident in what happened. Jesus wasn't accidentally born in Nazareth. It, just, it didn't just happen that he was born in that area. He didn't, it didn't just happen that he began his ministry and, and Simeon understood something. Uh, I mean, 
he didn't, Simeon didn't just happen to understand something about his birth, put two and two together. It didn't just happen that Jesus came along at the right time when uh, the, the, the world affairs congealed to bring about this, this instance in the Middle, Middle East, the, the Near East, where, hey, you can be in Israel and get that word out to the rest of the world within days. These, these weren't just accidents. This was God doing this, directing all of this to make clear who Jesus was. Jesus was attested by God through miracles, wonders and signs, Acts tells us. Miracles would be mighty acts, those, those things that, that we understand as being powerful uh, oh, uh, changes in what should be. They're outside the natural order. This should not happen this way. It takes some sort of great power to bring somebody back from the dead. It takes a great power to multiply uh, five loaves and two fish. It takes incredible power to calm the sea, to walk on a stormy sea. These are all miracles that take an incredible hand, and it can't just be that this guy was faking all of this. There, there is tradition uh, among Jews and others that Jesus was just a very good magician. And Peter is saying here, no, 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 these, these sorts of things don't happen by, from very good magicians. David Copperfield, uh, David Blaine, all these guys, they, they can't do what Jesus did. And Peter is telling them, it was attested to you who Jesus was by these miracles. Then he says wonders and signs. And these two words always show up together. And what it's saying is that wonders are those acts, but signs are why they, they, have, they performed those acts. Uh, marvels that point to the divine power behind them. See, just as the, the instances in Jesus' life weren't accidental, just as God was orchestrating all things to happen in a certain way, even the very miracles He performed, the, the mighty acts of power that He showed the people, they all were not just to get their attention and go, wow, that was, a, that was really neat, Jesus, we appreciate that. That was worth the price of admission to see you do that. That was impressive. No, there was a purpose behind them. Jesus did these things not to make himself look good, but to show that there was a message behind what he was doing. There was more to it than just the actual act. There was power behind it. There was a message behind it. There was, they were attention-getting, and Jesus said you know, a couple of times, yeah, you see the miracles I do, and you still don't get it. It's not about the miracles. A corrupt generation asks for a sign. He said, y'all just, just like the party tricks. But I'm telling you, the tricks, the miracles have a purpose, and y'all aren't getting the purpose. So Peter says these, these miracles, these wonders and signs were attesting to Jesus' lordship and messiahship. And he says, you know what he did. He's talking to a group of people, very likely many of them saw the things that Jesus did. But even those that didn't see them, they had heard about them. We have 
a number of examples. Josephus, who never saw Jesus, never met Jesus, he writes some years later about the, the, the way he wrote it was almost as a legend of this Jesus who did all these incredible things. Even Josephus knew. Even others knew about this, this miracle worker, this traveling magician. And Peter says, y'all know about this guy. Y'all know what I'm telling you is the truth. You know as I stand here, you saw them. But because you saw them, you should have believed him. He, he makes that clear in verse 23, uh, verse 22. Signs that God did among you, just as you yourselves know. He leaves that hanging. There at the end. And what have you done with that knowledge? The question can be asked of us, what have we done with that knowledge? The Jesus that we know, believers, what have we done with that knowledge? Verse, 22, he go, uh, verse 23, rather, he goes on to tell them even more how God was orchestrating these events. How God was uh, attesting to Jesus' lordship and messiahship through these activities. God determined that it would happen, and the people were at fault. Now, wait a minute, Michael. If, if God caused it, how are the people at fault? Well, this is one of the great tensions of the Bible. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, because both of them are true. God is sovereign over all things, and I have choices to make. We have choices to make. And here in that, this passage, that's what he's saying. This was all God's plan all along. From bef the, before creation, from uh, the foundation of the earth, at the, at, the, at the creation of Adam and Eve, when they sinned, Jesus was the plan. Jesus, uh, God knew what would be done. God knew how he was going to do it. God knew when it was going to happen. God was going to orchestrate the entire thing. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. God planned it, and God saw that it was going to happen. Now, this is quite a debate, particularly among Southern Baptists. And if you're not on any social media, you probably have no idea this debate is occurring, and that's perfectly fine that you don't. But it is a deba debate among Southern Baptists, which is, which is stronger. Is God's sovereignty more powerful than man's will? How, how much free will does man have? Does man have any free will? Does God cause everything, including sin, to happen? Is God the author of sin? That's a question that comes up. Well, let me give you a few, uh, well, water-muddying statements. There is no scriptural doubt that God knows everything that will happen. Perfect foreknowledge. And I would stop there and, and add, there's no doubt that God knows everything that could happen. What do you mean by that, Michael? Well, I, I mean, for example, God knows what would have happened if Hitler had died as a child, to make it, take a huge example. God also knows what would have happened if I had not come as pastor to First Baptist Sulphur. Smaller example. God knows what would have happened if I had not had 
a donut in the Sunday school office this morning before church. That's a very, very minor circumstance. Yet, God knows you know, each decision affects the rest of everything that happens after that. Does my donut eating affect? Well, it's a few calories I probably didn't need. So, yeah, that affects the, uh, the rest of my days. So God knows what would have happened if I hadn't done that. God knows what will happen since I have. So God knows everything. Everything that does ha- will happen and everything that could happen. And he directly causes what he chooses. What do you mean by that? Well, I have a view of God's sovereignty that says God is sovereign enough to not cause things. God is powerful enough to step back if he so chooses, and say, I'm going to let you make the decision with full knowledge of the decision that will be made. I'm going to let you make the decision and reap the consequences of that decision. So when it comes time for me, for example, to come to First Baptist Sulphur, God left that decision up to me as to what I was going to do and reap those consequences knowing full well what I was going to do, and having a perfect plan for me. His will was for me to come. His plan was for me to come. But he was not going to force me to make that decision. Now, there are plenty of people that disagree with me on that, uh, that idea and that belief. He also directly causes what he chooses. There was nothing that was going to stop Jesus from being crucified on this Passover at this year. Nothing. God then, because he is sovereign, because he is all-powerful, has the complete and total prerogative to step in and cause whatever he wants to happen at any point, at any time. That's when we call them miracles. They're outside of the realm of nature. They're outside of what seems possible. God steps in and does it. He has that power. He has that sovereignty. So there's no doubt he can do all those things. God can do whatever he wants to do, whatever he wills to do. So I believe he can will not to do something, not to cause something, but we'll still know that it's going to happen. So there's no scriptural doubt for that. There's also, in my view, there no scriptural doubt that we choose to believe and follow Jesus. I don't believe that God makes us believe. I believe we must be drawn by the Holy Spirit. I believe we do not experience salvation except the Spirit draw us, except that God reveal Himself to us, except that God open our hearts, soften our hearts. But I believe the ultimate choice to follow Christ is our choice, a free choice. And I don't believe that we only have the option to choose not to follow Him he makes us follow him. I don't believe that at all. I believe there's no scriptural doubt that we choose a free, true choice. We choose to follow Jesus. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Well, Michael, how can you believe those things? They seem opposed to each other. Yeah, you're right. I believe them because the Bible says both. I believe that if we are too far one way, God decrees everything, including sin. God causes everything that happens. We go too far. 
And I believe if we go too far the other way, you get to where God doesn't know anything that's going to happen. You don't even get, you, you even throw out foreknowledge because, well, God just can't know what's going to happen because we all have completely free choices. I could decide different from what he thought was going to happen. There are people that believe that. Those are the extremes. The Bible does not teach those extremes. The Bible hints toward those extremes on either side, giving us this tension that we cannot explain, but we have to say both A and B are true, even though it seems like A and B are opposed to each other. God causes, and man causes. And there we are. He says here that you, uh, he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, and he says, you used, Peter says to the Jews, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. The responsibility clearly lies on the shoulders of the Jews, especially the, the leadership, the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees, but he's also throwing it on the Gentiles. That's Romans, lawless people. He means primarily here those without the law, the Old Testament law, but he's also lumping in with that group these these Jewish leaders and the people that they uh, coerced into making this decision and going against Jesus, they were all equally responsible, uh, responsible for the crucifixion. As I told you a couple of Sundays ago, that means the Jews, the Gentiles, you, me, we are responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Just as surely as I had been there yelling, crucify him, my sin has nailed him to the cross. David Crowder has a song out right now, uh, and I can't think of the name of it at the moment when, when somebody does help me out. He talks about he held the nail that, that nailed him to the cross. He, he swung the hammer. We know that, we do that because it was our sinfulness that put him there. And yet, God put him there. God was sovereign. We have responsibility. So that's, that's how Peter opens up this, this sermon. Then he keeps going, right? He, he goes from this uh, summary to some scriptural proofs. First scriptural proof is the resurrection. You killed him, he says. You delivered him to lawless people. They crucified him. He died, but, there's no literal but there, but this is what he's saying, verse 24. God raised him up. You killed him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently, this is Peter speaking now, no longer quoting scripture. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. Hadn't come up yet, that's what he's saying. His tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants descendants on his throne seeing what was to come he spoke concerning the resurrection of the messiah he is not abandoned in hades 
and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. So, verse 24 has this, this, it doesn't quite show up in in this translation as well as it does in some others. It, It has a pregnancy and birth overtone and imagery. When it says the, uh, the pains of death, it actually it says the, the birth pangs of death. The, this, this idea that, that creation groans to, to be redeemed. It, death groans under the weight of holding believers back when God has raised them spiritually already. There's this, this tension. Uh, and, and that's the imagery he uses here. Peter uses, that, there's, that the, the, the pains of death similar to birth have been defeated by Jesus. One uh, theologian put it this way in discussing the use of this terminology. He said, what Peter is saying here is the abyss, hell, Hades, can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Now, I, I've never given birth. That may come as a shock to some of you, I, I, but just, just so I haven't. Uh, but I do know that, one, especially once you've had a child or two, three, four, as I've been told, uh, come quicker for most folks. Not always, I'm just a general rule. And, and can, I, I, you cannot imagine, I, I know people are told this, just wait, don't push, and, and what, is, what is it? I got to. Uh, there's no holding that baby in when that baby's ready to come, right? Death could not hold Jesus down when God had decreed Jesus would not be held down. Death tried, it gripped, it held on to our Savior, and our Savior said, you have no power, death. You cannot hold the Redeemer back. That's the birth pang. Now, this psalm proved messiahship. This psalm did not prove resurrection. Eyewitness testimony proved the resurrection. Peter did not say, see, this psalm says he would rise again. No, Peter says, see how this psalm is talking about the Messiah rising? Well, you know everybody here, he says, that's the, the, the testimony. Um, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. I see him motioning to the 120 that are standing there with him. Maybe some of those in the, uh, in the uh, congregation, the audience that day, the crowd, are going, yeah, I remember, I remember seeing him after the, that, after the crucifixion. I didn't think about it, but wow, is that what happened? The psalm proved his messiahship. The testimony proved the resurrection. And David here could not have been speaking of himself because David's dead. David could not be saying of himself, death, decay will not see me, will not come upon me, will not find me. He cannot be saying that he, David, would overcome this. There had to be someone else. He saw a descendant having the paths of life. David saw a descendant being the Messiah. And as a descendant of David, Jesus was truly a part of David's flesh. You are a part of Everyone who comes before you, or rather I should flip that and say everyone who has come before you, you are a part of them. You, you can now send your, uh, 
your, your spit off to Amazon and a few other places, and they will tell you where your DNA comes from. They'll give you percentages of continents from this continent, and they can narrow it down sometimes to countries, and if they work hard enough at it, they can narrow it down even more than that. You are a part of everyone who has, or you are made up of everyone who has come before you. So we can literally say that when David saw uh, his flesh not being decayed, not being uh, overcome by death, moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, verse 26, he meant, we know now, he meant his flesh in Christ, in his descendant Jesus, would not see death. My flesh will rest in hope. It will not see decay. And Jesus fulfills that, that prophecy. And in Acts 3.15, Jesus is called the source of life by Peter. He uses a phrase very similar to what uh, David used when he said, you have revealed the paths of life to me. Speaking of God, David says, I see the path of life, and that path of life was the source of life when the Messiah would come in David's lineage. Peter goes on. There's the, the scriptural proof of his Messiahship through resurrection. Now we come to the scriptural proof of Messiahship through exaltation. He continues, therefore, verse 33, therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. He's saying, what y'all just saw here, this is the work of the Messiah, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David says, the Lord says to my Lord, an odd phrase to use of himself, because he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about this lineage, this piece of his flesh that would come along and be the Messiah. So Peter's logic here in showing us these verses and laying them out this way is, is this. If Jesus promised the Spirit, and over and over he did, and at the end, before he, was, before he ascended, he did. So if Jesus promised the Spirit and the Spirit comes from God, which that's what the, uh, they understood, the Holy Spirit would only come from the hand of God, and if we've received the Spirit, Peter is saying, and, and we have, he, he did, they did. You saw the, the flames, you, you heard the wind, you, you saw uneducated people speak in, in languages they didn't know. And that Spirit sending is a messianic event, because he's already gone back to Joel and said, the Spirit coming is a messianic event. Joel knew that when the Spirit came in such a way, it was foretelling, it was along with the, spirit, uh, the, the, the Messiah coming. And if David wasn't talking about himself but a descendant, David wasn't talking about himself not seeing decay, his own flesh not seeing decay. He wasn't talking about his own flesh having hope. He wasn't talking about himself being seated at the right hand of God, but his descendant. So, if Jesus promised the Spirit, and if the Spirit comes from God, and if we've received the Spirit 
a messianic event, and if David wasn't talking about himself but a descendant, then Jesus is the Messiah. And at this point, the congregation, the crowd, you heard this, and that was everybody's jaw hitting the floor. Have mercy. This is the Messiah. They start putting, adding it up. They start putting the numbers together, and they, they don't have a calculator. They got their abacus. I don't know how those things work. I assume it makes that noise. And then they look at it and then go, he's right. Jesus must be the Messiah. Because Scripture said these things about the Messiah, and Jesus did these things. God attested to his Messiahship through these acts, these miracles, these signs that, that had a point and a purpose. We look at this and we say, how could we have missed it? That's what they're thinking. Jesus is the Messiah. And then Peter, he knows he's got him. He knows he, he, he's got the hook. He, he, the, the bobber's gone down. He, he knows they're filling with it. He's just waiting for that moment. Set that hook. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So if they didn't get it yet, if some of them are still going, working that abacus, doing the num- running the numbers, this just doesn't add up. Peter lets them have it. He sets the hook. Let everybody know with certainty that this Jesus, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So Messiah was just proven. He just went through Joel and Psalms to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Lord, he's taken us back to verses 18 and uh, to verse 34. Verse 18, he says, I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both uh, men and women, and, uh, and they will prophesy. That's the, the wrong uh, verse. Verse 21, I'm sorry, not 18. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 34 For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord. See, these these uses of the word Lord, these are Yahweh lords. These are Almighty God Lord. These are don't make any graven image Lord. These are don't take my name in vain Lord. There is none like me Lord. You cannot see my face and live Lord. And Peter says, God has made this Jesus God. Now, we don't want to take, we could very easily stumble off into heresy here with this one phrase, God has made. Jesus was always God. He's telling them that God has shown Jesus to be Lord and Messiah. Peter is scandalous here. He makes Jesus equal with God. And the next verse is not, verse 37, is not and the people gathered up stones to kill him. Because that would be the heretical thing. I mean, that's, that's really what got Jesus crucified. When he would not deny being God. 
Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. Are you, are you really God? Are you, you, you said it. And he was crucified. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we preach. This is what we share. Jesus is the Messiah, Hebrew. Christ is what it is in Greek. It all means Savior, sent by God, who is equal with God, and not just equal with God, but is God. You, 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 Jews, Romans, Gentiles, Sulphurites, Louisianans, Texans, Chinese, Japanese, Mexican, you, all of you, killed him with your sin, but he lives. That's the gospel. And his living is the proof of sin's defeat. So Peter tells us this Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. What's your take home? Believer, this should remove your complacency. This should tell you, I don't serve some weak, some uh, uninvolved, some non-committal Savior. Your salvation calls you to something much greater. I'm not saved by grace through faith for no reason. I do not have a buddy-buddy when it comes to Jesus. Now, we have an incredibly intimate relationship with our Savior. There is no doubt. And it is an intimate relationship that allows us to talk freely, to pray, to enter the throne room. The veil has been split. We have direct access to God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. But yet we have so watered our relationship down that we are no longer in awe of the fact that God became flesh, dwelt among us, and died for us. But Jesus is Lord and Messiah. That should remove any sluggish familiarity that we have with Jesus. That allows us to say, eh, Jesus is my homeboy. Or Jesus is my boyfriend. Or other things that uh, I'm not real comfortable with. Our relationship is such that we have that sort of intimacy, but he is so much more than that. We cannot take away from who he is. So that's to you, believer. Unbeliever this morning, if Jesus is Lord and Messiah, why do you still doubt him? Why do you still doubt he can save you? Why do you still doubt that you need his salvation? Why do you hesitate to trust him for salvation? Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection is one of the most attested to events in history. Why do you sit there and wonder, well, maybe it's just not true. I don't know. That's just, I don't know. Scripture, eyewitness, it all points to Jesus. So there's a spirit that's calling you today. Actually, there are two spirits that are calling you today. There are two spirits that are working on your heart. One is the spirit of the devil, the spirit of the Antichrist. It is the, the one who cares nothing for you. He just doesn't want God to win. But he's got you. And he wants to keep you. 
So he'll give you all the reasons why Jesus isn't who he says he is. He'll, he'll tell you all the reasons you can't believe the Old Testament. He'll tell you all the reasons he thinks you can't believe the New Testament. He will sit there right now, whisper in your ear, that everything I'm telling you, well, that's good for him, but he, you know, it's not, it's not what you need. Or if he can't get you there, and he knows that there's conviction on your heart now, he will tell you, wait till next week. Oh, do that later. Are there some things you still want to do? You, you know, some, some party things you want, some, some your own things? You don't want to give your life to Jesus because he's going to screw all that up. You need to do your thing now. We'll do Jesus later. Or some version of that story. That's the one spirit that's working on you this morning. The other spirit is telling you he was attested to by God over and over and over while he lived. Scripture tells you he is the Messiah. Scripture again tells you that his exaltation is true. Scripture tells you he is risen. Eyewitness accounts tell you he is risen. Your own heart right now is telling you Jesus is who he says he is. Which spirit will you listen to today, unbeliever? Which one will, will you heed? Today I beg you to call on the Savior. Call on Jesus the Savior, the Messiah. Admit you're a sinner and repent of your sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have the hope, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even though the wages of our sin is death, we don't deserve anything but hell, and yet the Messiah came, gave his life for you and for me, died because of our sins. So, what are you going to do with that? Admit, repent of your sin, turn from your ways. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that Jesus is your only salvation. Believe in his life, death, burial, resurrection. Trust him with your salvation. Believe that he can take your sin away. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But you need to confess him. There's an action that takes place. There's a willful choice on your part to follow him. Confess Christ. Give your life to him and follow him. Choose Christ. Believe, repent, and believe. The Gospel of John. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. If you confess with your mouth and believe, you will be saved. This morning I want to ask you, what is your decision? How will you walk out of here this morning? Will you trust Christ? Or will you believe the lie of the devil that says, I got another week, I got another month. Trust him today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that someone here would call on the Savior, would trust Jesus for their salvation, that they would make the decision to, to follow him. God, we pray that you would, your spirit would, would work on the heart of everyone here, particularly the unbeliever and that that unbeliever would choose to follow you. God, we thank you that your salvation is there and open for all, freely to accept, but also freely to deny, to walk away from. And Lord, I pray this morning that the choice would be to follow you. God, work on the hearts of the believers this morning. 
that we would no longer be complacent in our salvation, that we would not lose sight of this Jesus Messiah, uh, Lord and Messiah, the, the, the greatness of whom, in whom we serve, the, the incredible magnitude of being able to have an intimate relationship with the one who sits at the right hand of the Father today, being able to have an intimate relationship with the Father himself because of the Son. God, it's not, let us never think that we just got this get-out-of-hell-free card in Jesus and it, and it doesn't affect the rest of our lives. Lord, may we never lose the awe of our relationship with Jesus, who is both Lord and Messiah. God, work in hearts today. May each, each one of us be changed for you and toward you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Will you make him your Lord this morning? Will you let him lead? Will you follow this morning and we come forward I want to trust Christ. I don't get it yet, but I want you to pray for me, Michael. I'll do that. I got it. I, I believe this morning. I just want to tell folks, and you want to be baptized. We can do that. Not today, but we can do it. Maybe you have other decisions you need to make. You need to lead a life of holiness. You need to get some things straight. You need to join our church. Maybe God's calling you to something you don't want to do. He's calling you to ministry. He's calling you to missions. He's calling you beyond yourself. He is your Lord and Messiah. You don't just get the salvation and not get the lordship. Obey him this morning. Let's stand and let's sing and you do business with God today.